in a world full of negative people. Hey man, I'm just trying to be a positive guy, a positive farmer, a positive outfitter. This is the Shark Farmer Podcast with your host, Rob Sharkey. Whatever. And welcome to Shark Farmer Podcast. Hey, I'm your host, Rob Sharkey, and today we're going to go down to St. Louis. Today we're going to be talking to Cammy Ryan. How you doing, Cammy? I'm doing well, Rob. How are you? I have got zero complaints. So where exactly are you in the great city of St. Louis? Like where geographically or where do I live around St. Louis? I mean, I was hoping maybe you just give like your mailing address and maybe your bank routing number. Oh, hey, well, just I got to look that up. I don't have a good memory. <laughs> I'm, I am right now in building FF in Chesterfield at our Bear Bear Crop Science location. All right. That's the old Monsanto buildings, right? It is indeed. Right, well, can I say that? Or do you get like a little electric shock every time I mention Monsanto? Monsanto. <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Are they touchy about yes. that? No, not really. I mean, nobody gets really touchy about anything around here. It, it's just, uh, I think probably what we're trying to do is we're trying to integrate and become the new company, Bear. And those of us that are from Monsanto, the legacy Monsanto, we fall onto those old habits of, you know, going, oh, I work for Monsanto. No, I work for Bear. I work for Bear. I work for Bear. Huh. I heard so it wasn't going yeah. well. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> it's going fine. Lots as of one people. would anticipate in these situations. Yeah. Lots like of people this. say there's about on the verge of a civil war between the old Monsantoites and the new Bearites. Wow, there's someone that sits across from me in the cubicles, and we seem to get along okay. That's not what she told me, or maybe he. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's Laura, so maybe I've got to go back and talk to her. Okay. You know what does get along? What? Having good tell grains me. in your bins and the STEPS GMS system. How's that for a segue? That is a great segue, and yes, I would bet that that is a good thing. Okay, here's the thing. You put your, your corn, your soybeans, or whatever. I don't know. What are you putting in your grain bins? All zero of my grain bins? Yeah. Yeah. I guess air, <laughs> nothing. All right, you're no help to this set. No. <laughs> Especially this year, because this year is uh, I'm cutting corn that is wetter than I've generally cut. But it's okay. I'm not going to complain, even though I'm complaining. You dry it which warms it up, and then you put it in a bin. And I've been here before in 2009, and I'm like, oh, boy, what do I do? If you turn on the fan, the aeration fans in the bins, I mean, that costs so much damn money. I mean, it's, the electrical companies, they're proud of their product. That's all I'm saying. You know what I mean? <laughs> I get it. <laughs> yeah. You guys have electricity so, down there, don't you? We have a little bit, yes, but okay. for the most part, I have to send the cowboy out, and we run our electricity on a bike that's attached to our system, to our HVAC system. Yeah, your husband you're talking about, right? I am indeed. Okay, we'll get to him and the, the question of does he look more like George Bush or Harrison Ford later, but for now, <laughs> what you need to focus on the ad, okay? Okay. I don't know how much to run my fans because I don't want that corn to go bad, but I don't want to pay any more in electricity. Or in some of those cases, you can run the fan too much and it actually dries it down too much. You don't want that either. You spent all year growing this crop. There's no reason just throwing away at the end. But but lucky for you, Cammy, there is a product, Steps GMS. 
what they do is they set up there at your grain bin. So they know what's going on inside your grain bin. And then they've got Wi-Fi. You ever heard of her? I have heard of her. Okay. She's amazing. Yeah, damn right she is. So it's talking to the satellites up there in space. And they're saying, hey, this is what the humidity and weather is going to be down by the bin. So it controls the fan. You don't have to do a thing. Don't have to do a thing. But if you wanted to do a thing, it allows you to do a thing. I mean, can you imagine that? It's amazing. So it's like precision ag in a bin. Well. In a dryer in a bin. I get, I, the, actually, that's pretty astute, I'm going to say. Is that why you're a PhD? Because you're smart and stuff? Not because of that. No, no, not that specific <laughs> thing. No. I got to tell you, you farmers that do this great job of growing our food, you're the experts in that area. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Actually, no, it's not us. It's because of products like Step GMS, because I've screwed up on my fan so many times. And the guy who invented it, his name is Eli Troyer. He started 40 years ago putting up those uh, baling bins, they're called. Do you ever go like by a real small town and they had like, uh, I don't know, 20 little small grain bins all in a bunch? You ever see that? Yes, yes. Yeah, so that was like a government program back, well, I'm assuming 40 years ago. Yeah, the government actually paid to do that so we'd have more storage as a country. We think we got goofy programs now. Imagine what they did back then. Anyway, he started learning green bins back then by building those, and now he's building this technology. It's amazing. Go to their website, because here's the thing. The prices are on the website. Don't you hate when you want to know how much something costs and there's no price on the website, Cammie? Yeah, I know, and that happens a lot. Drives me nuts. I think you'll look at these and go, oh, well, that's not as much as I thought it'd be. That would sure be worth buying it. Buy these things. I tell you, they're awesome. It's stepsgms.com. All right. Cammy Ryan from St. Louis, but not originally, right? No, I'm originally from Canada. Eh? Home province, Saskatchewan. Eh? Okay. I actually know Saskatchewan uh, scarily well. What part of Saskatchewan are you from? Hometown, Nipawin, Saskatchewan. Yeah, that's not one I've heard of. What is it? Nip? I don't even want to say Nip- it because it you can that can go that can go wrong really <laughs> fast. Good, it can go wrong fast. It's Nipawin, N I P A W I N. Nipawin. And you know how I know how to spell it? Because I was a cheerleader, so you had to know how to spell it. I there's no way you worked Nipawin into a cheer. Yeah, we did. What was it? Cammy? N I P W I N. Go Bears. The Nippowin Bears. Yes. <laughs> That's better than the Bear Nippowins. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. Uh, I, I think that this conversation is heading in a different direction than I anticipated. Yeah, focus. This is supposed to be serious with your with the exactly. Bear Monsanto people. Yeah, we don't screw around. Exactly. All right. I've known you for years. In fact, I've got to admit to something embarrassing. I had someone that was giving me suggestions for who to interview, and they said you. And uh, I said, oh, I've already interviewed her. They said, oh, yeah, which one is it? And I went back and looked, and I couldn't find it. And do you know why I couldn't find it? Why? Because I had it never happened. (laughs) (laughs) I was counting on the fact that it didn't happen, but I thought, did we have an interview? And I forgot about it because that happens to me nowadays. I'm in my 50s now, so I'm losing my memory. I swear. We talked at one time, but um, no, I guess I was wrong. But anyway, 
I followed you forever. I've been a fan of yours forever. You're very funny. You're very personable. You're great for agriculture. But I want to know about little Cammy. Tell me your background. My background. Okay. How far back am I going? I'm assuming you were born at some point. I was born at one point. I was born in North Battleford, Saskatchewan. I guess I'm a third generation Canadian. My grandparents were farmers. They broke the land and they farmed. My mother didn't farm, but her brothers did. So I always was quite close to the farm. And Nippon's a very strong agricultural community, small town, and lots of agriculture around there as well. So I never really have been too far away from farming. Okay. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. One second before we get too far away. Did you say your grandparents were the ones that actually broke the ground? Yes. That is so cool. Because here, like in Illinois and the States, a lot of times, I mean, you're talking four or five generations. But to actually have your grandparents, I'm assuming maybe you knew them. You were actually able to talk to the people who actually broke ground? Yes. But, well, okay. Let's just go back a bit. Here's the thing. My grandfather emigrated here at maybe the turn of the last century. Now, he was a lot older than my grandmother, and my grandmother was a lot older than my mother. My grandmother didn't have my mom until she was 45. So I'm benefiting from this short distance from breaking ground because there were such huge gaps within Mm -hmm. the generations that I come from. So, yeah, I guess so. Because of that, I think I have a what I call, and this is what, because I think society is losing its farming memory, you know, because we're getting further and further away from farming. Mm-hmm. I think that's why I have good farming memory, even though I've never farmed. My kids have less of it now, right? They were born in a city and they were raised in a city and they don't really have the same connections to the farm. That's yeah, only but, natural, but yeah, right? So I heard stories. When you're that close generationally to the farm, and maybe at that point when they were breaking ground, then you do hear stories and you hear stories differently, right? Because you know how that whole thing about when you're having a conversation with someone and they say one thing and they tell it to the next person, tell it to the next person, tell it to the next person. Mm-hmm. And then by the time the person at the end gets the story, it's something completely different. I like to think I've gotten a more realistic story about how things were. There were a lot of hardships. I mean, I don't need to tell anybody that. But the other thing is Canada is a younger country than the U.S. in a lot of ways. We go back, I would think, probably five, six generations in Canada, but they go back a lot more in the U.S., I'm assuming. Yeah. Well, still, very cool that your grandparents Mm. did that because it it seems very intimidating to me to go to a place that had not been farmed, break the ground, and then farm it. Just, I don't know. I think it's very cool, but I interrupted you. No, no, it's good. My grandfather died before I was born, so I didn't actually talk to him. But my grandmother shared a lot of stories with me, and she was an interesting woman, too, because she emigrated to Canada in 1928. She was 24 years old. She was born and raised in Norway, and she was the oldest of 12 kids. She started hunting at the age of four to feed her family, and she delivered most of her siblings. Whoa, so whoa, was, what, yeah, what the right? hell? What was she hunting at I four know. years old? Elk and all sorts of things. I mean, they lived in the northern part of Norway. It was pretty remote and desolate. They were dairy farmers. And I've been back there since. And the successive generations are actually, you know, have quite well-established dairy farms now. But back then, there was lots of nothing. And it was really tough. 
That was hunter-gatherer times. That's there insane. For her. I even remember when my kids were four, they couldn't even hunt for the damn remote. <laughs> and then where you find it is in between the cushions of your first world couch. Right? Yeah, yeah, I know. And the batteries yeah. are missing. It happens every time. But anyway, that's every time. that's unreal that she was, I'm guessing, like almost forced by necessity to hunt at four years old. Well, yeah, and it was expected of them. She wasn't probably the only one, you know, child that was out there doing that. And she learned young. And then when she actually emigrated to Canada in 1928, she was single. She had no job prospects and no prospects for a husband. She got to the port on the East Coast. She traveled all the way to the West Coast. And she ended up being a cook for about 40 loggers that worked in the logging industry in British Columbia. And she did that all the way through the dirty 30s. And Legend has it that my grandmother could feed 40 loggers on a sack of potatoes, two onions, and a little bit of ham for a week. I mean, she just was magical in the kitchen, and she could make magic happen there. So she was always this one that when I spent so much time with her after my parents split up and and we were living with her again, she's the one that really, really instilled in me this respect for food because she did not no refrigeration. She did not know irradiation. She did not know all of these things that she came to know when she finally came to Canada. And she said to me always, she said, see that rickety old fridge in the corner there, Cammie? Never take that for granted because that is one of the greatest things that's ever been invented was the fridge. She just looked at things completely differently because she lived a completely different life. And I got these kind of... um first-hand stories directly from her. And you know what? That's important to me. I'm really glad I have that, and I'm glad I'm sharing those with my children as well. That wasn't that long ago. I mean, you said you're almost 50. You look almost 30, by the way. That wasn't that long ago that your grandmother, I mean, the, the necessity and the need of just something we think is simple as a refrigerator, that's kind of mind boggling when you think about it. Mm-hmm. And it was a very disruptive technology at the time, too, because we as a society, as people, we have difficulty with things that are new and innovative. And refrigeration represented something completely new and different. It was developed by companies, was probably, you know, eventually mass produced. But there was a lot of resistance because what it did was it shut down another industry. When you create something new, you're disrupting something else. So all of a sudden, those people that used to go out and cut chunks of ice out of rivers and haul them with their horses and sleds to different places and put them in ice boxes, as we knew them as, all of a sudden, their industry was disrupted. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that go with this. I mean, this is something you can think about in terms of what we look at today, like just adoption of so GM crops, for instance. There's always some social or societal resistance to new things, especially if it represents something unfamiliar or if it somehow impacts what people perceive to be how they think things should be. Here we go. Here's a company line, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, you're right, because when you were saying it, I'm sitting there and imagining in my mind if I had a company that went out and cut up the icebergs and brought them into people's ice houses, I would be making some ad campaign about how the, you know, there was an uptick and people getting sick, eating food from refrigerators and Mm -hmm. everybody would go, Mm -hmm. hmm, 
you know, I don't feel very good. And maybe it is because my food came from this new iced box that I don't know what is actually doing to my food. Well, yeah. And, and also the tractor, if you think it took about 50 to 60 years for the tractor to fully replace livestock on the farm too. It takes a long time sometimes with some technologies. And there was a lot of pushback from people that really loved their horses and felt that they were an important part of their farming operations. And so, yeah, there's resistance on things for sure. So you don't have a farm background as far as past your grandparents, right? Now, were your parents, did they farm? Did not. Okay. So where... Did Cammy get involved in going to an agriculture career? Well, it was really interesting because it was never my first career choice. I wanted to do other things. Like I wanted to be an actress. Really? And a model. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I had all these aspirations. Did you try it? And, oh, yeah, I did. Actually, well, long story short, when I was 19, I went to New York City by that time, I was in a modeling and talent competition, and I ended up auditioning for the director of Another World, and you're probably too young to remember that soap opera, but anyway, I auditioned for them, and I was in a competition as well, and I got an honorable mention in commercial acting. So I went into that. I also went into theater acting in Saskatchewan, so I was involved in that for a while. So those were kind of my very creative, aspirational things. Because I think I define as an artist first, because I also was a graphic artist for a long time as well. So those are the first things that I did right out of high school. Those were my things. Gotcha. Damn hippies. Okay. I shouldn't ask. <laughs> I actually shouldn't ask this. It's because I know this about you and we haven't got there yet. But I wonder now uh, if you are sitting there watching your daughter just really happy that she's trying to pursue, you know, something artistic. So this is really interesting because Blair and I are kind of opposites. It's really interesting. My husband, the cowboy. Mm -hmm. so He's not an artist. I don't think he would define as an artist, but I am. But as the kids were growing up, I think they got a good balance of both of, you know, his work ethic, his skill set. He's a carpenter by trade, like Jesus, he says. <laughs> <laughs> but I really always had the kids involved in certain things around the arts music and so forth. Both my kids, my son is a, he's an electrician by trade, but he's also an actor. And in fact, probably people have seen him in extras in some Netflix shows because they do a lot of filming up in Alberta, actually. So he's an actor and electrician. And my daughter is a yoga teacher. Plus she is a singer songwriter. These are things that to me are really important because when you have a job, jobs are great, no matter what your job is. But if you don't have something creative to fall back on that is solely yours and yours alone, then it's harder to ride out maybe the bad things that happen, whether it's your job or your business and so forth. So I've always really encouraged them to embrace those kinds of things. It wasn't a hard push. They're both very much artists, but I think they're also very pragmatic and realist. So Interesting family dynamic. We have very interesting dinner conversations when we get together. Before I forget, your daughter's got an amazing voice. Unbelievable. But going back to this creative side of it, there's going to be a lot of people that say, well, you're pissing away opportunities to, you know, really focus on your work. 
and your career, if you mess around with, you know, singing or doing podcasts or doing something dumb like that. <laughs> so what what's your response to hearing that argument? How do you create something new? Some of the best things, just in my work alone, like I work with a, a ton of different people here. We have toxicologists, pediatricians I work with, ER medical doctors, animal scientists, plant scientists. I work with a whole group of people here alone as an example. And when you come together around a particular problem or issue and you bring a diverse group of individuals together, you're better able to think outside the box of the immediate problem and come up with solutions, or you're better able to create new things. And that's not just to me in my day-to-day work, but I've seen it when I was an academic and I was at the university when I was a public sector researcher, same thing there. You pull in other disciplines, you're going to get different perspectives. And especially today, when we are disrupted by in, in good ways and sometimes in bad ways, but we're disrupted by different things coming out of different spaces, especially voices on social media, people who come from different walks of life, have different opinions about things, different perspectives. But sometimes that gathering of minds and different kinds of approaches to the way they think about things is a good thing. It can help for problem solving. It can also create a whole bunch of other problems as well. But I think that that is the beauty and the beast of this very networked, mass information, social media-driven world we live in. Are you someone that's bothered by things that aren't done in a chronological fashion? No, I'm all over the map. Good, good, because that's exactly where this podcast is going with this next question. (laughs) All right, you've... (laughs) You've got a PhD, so obviously you got some smarts to you. Would you say that you're book smart? And just be honest. Yes, in okay. some respects. All right. Um, no, no, it's not a trick yeah. question because I'm trying to figure out because a lot of times people will say the creative mind and the book smart mind don't necessarily coexist all that well. Okay, so if you think about intellectual capacity and how people think, when someone says I'm smart, I go, hey, I'm not any smarter than the next guy. I just went to school for a hell of a lot longer than most people. Ah, that next guy isn't that smart, honestly. Well, whatever. Anyway, uh, (laughs) I think, what was the question again? Now I'm I'm backwards. Book smart versus creative. Yeah. Right. There's this really good book out by David Ropps called The Intelligence Trap. And he talks about some research that was done where you have analytical intelligence, you have creative intelligence, you have relational intelligence. There's different types of intelligences. I work with a lot of people that are really analytically intelligent, and I would argue that they're very book smart. And then I also think that there's people like me that are maybe a little bit more creative. There's a little bit of analytical in me, but I didn't go back to school and get my first degree till I was 32 years old. So I had a bit of life experience ahead of time, and I had a different perspective on things. And quite frankly, I had been through a whole crap of a lot personally. So I had some life lessons there that really drove how I defined my educational experience at that point. I think that changes how you do things. A lot of people come and go to university right out of high school. They go all the way through. So they'll go all the way through to the PhD and they're 28 years old with a PhD. So Mm -hmm. 
everybody experiences life different. And I just think mine's different because of my life path. It just was different. See, that's why you don't go out of chronological order. See, I, I screw myself every time I try to do it. But yeah, we're going to go back. <laughs> I wrote a note. I interrupted you when you're an actress. You're trying to make it. You're doing soap operas, which I'm guessing half the audience doesn't know what it is anymore, but I do. And so what happened after that? So I didn't do soap operas. I auditioned in front of a director of a soap opera. So that's a little bit different. Yeah, I don't know. It's all sands through the hourglass. Like these are the days <laughs> of our lives. Days of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. So I did that. It was excellent. And I really enjoyed that experience. I came back home to Saskatchewan. I was involved in community theater. I I modeled part-time and I did uh, a lot of commercial acting and voiceover acting and that sort of thing. So I was doing all of that. And I actually got to audition for the lead role in at that time it was it was the World Expo and I was invited to to come and audition for a lead. I think I was at the point of they said to me, "Are you interested? This role is available for three people. Do you want to take it?" And I thought, yes, I do, because this is a great experience. It's the International Expo in Vancouver, British Columbia. And probably about a week later, I found out that I was pregnant. And so, no, that didn't happen. So I got married instead. It wasn't an unhappy thing, you know. I was, uh, (laughs) you know, probably at the time, (laughs) I I don't know. I'll just ask this. At the time, Mm -hmm. was that a disappointment to you? You know what? Maybe to a certain degree, but here's the other thing. I had a kind of unstable childhood, and I think part of my aspirations growing up is I really, really, really wanted to be a mom, and I wanted to be married, and I wanted to have a white picket fence. I was an idealist in that way, and I wasn't totally unhappy with that outcome at all. All right. That's good to hear. But, you know, there are so many times you hear people that look back on that opportunity that could have been, but I would have been able to do that if it wasn't for me getting pregnant. No, I don't know. I don't really look back with a a lot of regret. Okay. Even though a lot of kind of crazy things happened. Well, that's good. So you get married. How long have you been married? Mm -hmm. How many years have you been married? Oh, you mean all together? I, um... Damn it, Cammy! Uh, do you ever feel like maybe you just asked a question that you shouldn't have? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's an interesting story. Do you want to hear it? <laughs> Duh! Come on, Cammy. That's what we do. Okay. So this is funny. I don't, you know I don't share this a lot with people, but and when I do share it, people are often surprised. So Blair is my husband. I often on social media refer to him as the cowboy. Mm-hmm. He is the love of my life. We got married in 1986. We were very young, idealistic, optimistic, and totally naive, like really naive. But that was okay. We had love. We had each other, romance. We had our single wide trailer. We were good. I was pregnant at the time. And actually, I was maybe in my close to my eighth month of pregnancy. and We got into a car accident and we lost that baby. And that was a really difficult time. And when we talk about, you know, mental health now, I'm so pleased that we're starting to shine a light on on some of that stuff today. You know, do more egg in Canada and a lot of the stuff that, you know, Lindsay's working on and so forth. So 
I think these are important things because at the time I basically suffered, well, and my husband did too, with our grief really all on our own. And we didn't have the tools to manage it. And while we always got along, we were good mates and all so forth, it was really put a lot of pressure on our marriage. We did end up having Tanya about a, a year, year and a half later. So that was a real great point in our life, our oldest daughter, and she's just an amazing human being. And she kind of changed things around a bit, but we were still hanging on to some old stuff and some old grief. And after we lost Blair's dad a little while after that, I think our marriage just crumbled, not because we didn't get along. It's mm-hmm. just that we just, we kind of went off in different grieving paths and we couldn't find our way back to each other. So we decided that divorcing was the right thing to do. Fast forward. Whoa, Noah, let me ask before we, before we get too far ahead. <laughs> uh, now, how old were you? At that point, roughly 23. So young, 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 young. Well, yeah, I thought I knew everything then. Right. Didn't we all know everything? Yeah. I once interviewed a guy. He lost a child and he said, you know, he was married and he said, when we lost her, you know, my wife and I sat down and we said, you know, the, the statistics say that we won't get past this. But, you know, obviously that's not going to be us because they were a very, very close couple and they got along great. But in the end, he says, it's so hard to explain to uh, other couples out there how this can happen, but it's just something that they could not get over. They could not come together on and end up getting divorced. So you being 23 and you losing a kid, I can't say I'm tremendously surprised. Yeah, we didn't have any tools at all. And even the church we were affiliated with wasn't really helpful because no one knew how to handle these things, right? Mm-hmm. Even the hospitals didn't know how to handle it. It was just multiple things in society that just worked against us and also our inability to really try to work through things. We just didn't know what to do. So we divorced and I'm going to fast forward a little bit. I will say that, that he and I always got along and our first priority was our daughter, always our daughter, because we needed to make sure that she had both of us in her lives and that she didn't need to see us being unpleasant to each other. This just wasn't going to be part of the thing. I was raised in a way where there was a lot of antagonism between my parents, and I didn't want my daughter to go through that. So we made a pact that this was how we were going to handle things moving forward. We'd get together regularly, and you know, he'd come take her maybe for a few weeks or on alternate holidays. He actually had moved to Alberta by this time from Saskatchewan, and that's where he's living. So it made it a little more difficult, but we made it work. So one time in that span of time that we were apart, I went to take Tanya to visit him in Alberta, and whoops, nine months later, Hayden came along. How'd that so, happen? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> So here I am. I was already a single parent. And then I was a single parent with two kids now. And you might think that, well, isn't this the perfect time for you two to get back together? And we discussed it and we still felt we weren't really there. And I don't even know how to explain that part of our lives. It was weird. We were still kind of young and maybe we were making bad choices. Well, clearly, maybe we were. 
But anyway, we still had these two beautiful kids and we were still committed to them. Then fast forward to 2001 and essentially we decided to start dating. But at that point, we didn't want the kids to know we were dating because what if it didn't work out? We didn't want them to be disappointed. So we kind of snuck around on them for about a year. (laughs) That's kind of funny when you think about it. You're sneaking around with your ex-husband from your children. Yeah, trying to do that because uh-huh. the thing is, is, the kids know, oh, dad's in town. He's in town from Alberta. Well, how come mom's getting a babysitter for us and she's going out? Like, where's she going and where's dad? Well, <laughs> you know, they didn't necessarily put two and two together. And we were kind of happy because we wanted to make sure that it was going to work before we broke the news. And so it was interesting because when we finally broke the news, I think Tanya at that point was 14. And it was completely cynical because I think she was quite satisfied that she had me here and dad there and, you know, she had things under control. Mm -hmm. And then my son, who was almost eight at that point, he was so excited and so happy. He was at that age where he probably dreamt every night about when his parents could get back together. So for him, it was a dream come true. For our teenage daughter, it was not so much, but it all ended up working out. It was fine. We're getting back to your question here of how many years have we been married. So in 2007, I'd finished my PhD. I moved out to Alberta finally because I was finishing my schooling and I didn't move out to Alberta until after. So we did this long distance thing for quite a while, but I moved out there in 2007 and we decided that what we're going to do is we're going to get married at the house at Christmas and we're going to have all of our families there. And that's what we did. So we got a, a marriage commissioner to come out, but we forgot to file the paperwork to do it legally. So she goes, that's okay. Don't worry about it. You come in the new year and we'll get you all squared away legally. She goes, we'll just do the ceremony. So meanwhile, we get married at the house on our our property and everybody in our family thinks we're married, but we're really not married. We're kind of not legally married. And then we just never got around to going and getting it legally done. So then finally, this opportunity with Legacy Monsanto comes up and I said, well, look, you know, we're moving to Missouri. I don't think that they recognize common law marriage. We better get our ducks in a row here. So we went back to the marriage commissioner. She was actually going to end up retiring the next month. So timing was absolutely (laughs) perfect. And we got married on a Friday, October 3rd. And the kids were there, and it was so funny because the cowboy just come out of the shop, and he had on a sweatshirt, a ball cap, and he was covered in sawdust. We just got married. That's all we did. We just got married. The kids brought us flowers and a boutonniere and so forth. We got married. Everything was legal. And then we got the paperwork back, and we realized that she put the wrong date on it as the fourth. So we got married on the third in front of the marriage commissioner, but the date of our actual legal wedding was not till the Saturday, the 4th. So I like to think we have four anniversaries and we celebrate none of them, essentially. <laughs> Did you ever fix it or do you say, oh, the hell with it? We've done this enough. Well, no, it's done now. But everybody jokes and says, OK, when's the next wedding? We'd like to come or, you know, why don't we do one in the backyard? That'll be fun. Do it with your barn dance, County. That'll be great. OK, I thought it was a simple question. Apparently. No. Apparently it wasn't. Yeah. Not I, I, at all, not at all. <laughs> well, I mean, that's cool and completely understandable. I'm glad that you guys eventually came together after such a horrible uh, incident that affected you both. Well, and you know what I think the thing is, 
is, you know, I often reflect on, okay, how would we have been if we would have stayed together? I think part of being apart was we really grew as individuals. And I think when we finally came back together, it made us a better couple. And I don't know, I'm going to just stand by that story. I'm just going to stick with it because I do think that what I went through being independent on my own, managing things the way I did, getting two degrees and just doing my thing made me a better person. And that made me a better mom and it made me a better spouse. So, uh, you know what? Again, no regrets. Okay. You ready to leapfrog? Yep. So you go work for Monsanto. I do, yes. What did you originally get hired to do? Well, so I am social sciences lead and a lot of people go, what's that? Uh I understand that because it's a very vague title. Essentially, I'll just go back and I'll say, well, what is social science? Let's start with that. Social science is this broad umbrella of disciplines like sociology, psychology, economics, law, linguistics, you know, all of the humanities and liberal arts that we know. That's basically social science. And social scientists like me, at the end of the day, no matter what discipline you're working in, you're most often interested in relationships. You're interested in relationships between people and organizations or trade or any sort of thing like that. What I'm interested in and what's relevant to my job is I'm interested in the relationship between people and science or people and food production. I'm trying to figure out, understand, and bring that expertise and knowledge that helps us understand consumer behavior and decision-making and the psychology behind all that. And not only from a consumer perspective, but understand how we in the ag industry, even those of us that work in companies like I do, how do we think about how we talk about the work that we do, whether we're scientists or we're agronomists or we're social scientists like me, but thinking about how we talk about what we talk about and how that information is received. So that's basically my job. I help our regulatory and scientific affairs team here, think about how people view the products that we have, the benefits and the safety behind them, but also how people out there think about food and farming, because that affects every one of us. It doesn't matter what part on the value chain you play. We have to always be thinking about what's our relationship with society. Yeah, that makes no damn sense. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I know, I yes. know, but I love my job, so there we go. <laughs> what but, are you doing now, though? Because you are no longer Monsanto, you're bearer, and did your job change? It's not changed. I'm still what I am, because I've got a fairly unique set of skills and knowledge. This okay, job, Liam Neeson. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually the first of its kind in all of industry that I know, this role is the first of its kind. I haven't seen one since. It doesn't mean that companies don't think about these things, but I have a dedicated role in it. And that's a piece of this scientific affairs organization that I work with. So they've decided that's a priority. So that's what I do. And that's what I, I mean, it doesn't mean that the job won't change later, but the process of getting here was really interesting because like about 10, 12 years ago, I was working on some fairly high-level, obscure academic economic analysis about how plant genetic resources are shared globally. I won't even dig into that. It's intellectual property, material transfer, all that stuff. 
But what I started getting interested in, because I was looking at social networks, like how people connect and how they share resources like plant genetic resources, I also got interested in issues and controversy. And I wanted to understand how are these activists working together? And they're making such an impact on how people view or could potentially even more so make an impact on how people view food production, food and farming. Mm -hmm. So I got really interested in that. Nobody in my department seemed interested in it at all. So I kind of just jumped in. Then I started getting engaged on social media for two reasons. One, I wanted to understand that space more because it was a connecting space. But the other thing is I felt very lonely in the work that I was doing. And I was wanting to see if there were other people out there like me looking at problems like this. So it was a two-part strategy for me to do that. And then I got on board and then I started just observing behaviors online and how people talked about food and farming. And a talk I gave several years ago at an ag conference, I stood up and I said, you know what? Within five years, most, if not all, ag organizations and companies will have roles for social media experts. That, that didn't got a happen. good laugh. It didn't happen. That, that got a good laugh. <laughs> and then at the same time, my colleagues at the university were going, why are you even messing around with that stuff? It's just a fad. And I said, I honestly think this is going to powerfully shift, good or bad, the conversations we have about farming and agriculture. And I was in an ag college. And I felt it was really a vital piece of this. So I didn't get a lot of support around it. But gradually, as you've seen what has happened over time, you find out that social media, it's a disruptive platform. And we see a lot of things happening. And we're fighting back against a lot of misinformation. But part of my job is to really understand that space a little bit better and, and try and be one of the good voices out there. I try always to be balanced. But I mean, I'm going to get thrown to the wolves because I work for Big Ag anyway. But mm -hmm. but I just try to be a balanced voice. And I try to bring something different to the table. I like to share things about the psychology of how we think and why we think. Because at the end of the day, we are all human. It doesn't matter what walk of life we come from. We're all human. And so our behaviors are incentivized, motivated in very similar ways. It's just that we have different frames around us. We come from different parts of the world we come from different societies and we do different things. So you're a farmer and a podcaster, extraordinaire, I might add. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm an academic slash now I work for corporate eggs. So we all have different viewpoints on the world, but our voices are channeled through these platforms. And let's face it, they're very filtered. We've got echo chambers out there and this really impacts what we view on our social media feeds every day. And we're so actively involved in them. Mm -hmm. Like They're a huge part of our lives. Let me ask you an unfair question. And I know this sure. is unfair because of you're working for Bear, and I know you've, you can only say so much. A company like Bear, when it comes to social media, do they focus on everything, everybody, and, you know, including your haters, the general public, that magical movable middle, and I'm talking bear agriculture, or do they focus on their customers, the farmers? Do they just focus on them and say the hell with the people that don't understand what we're producing? No, I think that they try to be more broad, but I think you've got to separate the corporate social media strategy, right? So they've got a corporate media strategy, clearly. 
they want to engage. They want to be part of solutions and they want to find ways and work with others and other stakeholders to kind of build solutions. It is a broad strategy, but I think that the piece of it that gets missed in all of this is that there are individuals within this company that work in our own way out there to kind of better understand the environment and to find ways to have better impact in that space out there. So I think there's a twofold thing here. So when you're asking a question about what Bear does, Bear does multiple things. But I think from a corporate perspective, when they're out there trying to have some impact on perceptions, I think it is broad in a certain way, but the corporate voice is a little different than the individual voices that are mobilized around that, like me and you know other individuals that are mobilized in the company. I'll point out, Bear is not a sponsor. They never have been. I went to Germany with Bear, but they've never sponsored anything. So this is not a, so I can ask mean questions about Bear if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I might not answer them. <laughs> it's tough. I don't know. The old Monsanto, I felt, mm-hmm. dropped the ball because they focused on their customers and ignored the anti-Roundup rhetoric for a long time. Mm-hmm. That's my impression of what happened. I just mm-hmm. wonder now if you're all under this bare umbrella, if y'all going to learn from those lessons. Well, I mean, I would hope so. As a company, Monsanto was, and, and and the leadership even says this, they were late to the table, late to the party in terms of communicating more broadly with broader sets of stakeholders. And I think that that as a company, they leveled up a lot. And I was part of that leveling up. Like what we did internally as a company about five years ago is that they brought on different kinds of expertise because they recognized they needed to do things differently. Like we've got an in-house registered dietitian PhD we had Vance Grove, Millennial Engagement League. He was on board. Like There was me as a social scientist. I represented something different. We have engaged and brought in different kinds of people because of this to find better ways to relate. Now, what's going to happen with Bear? We're still kind of going through some growing pains, but the company is a little bit different than, the, than Legacy Monsanto. We have like consumer health, we have pharma, and we have crop science. There are three divisions in Broader Bear. There's also not only what we're doing division-wise, but how are we working collectively around things? Because you and I know, Rob, you can't talk about agriculture without talking about the environment. You can't talk about the environment without talking about animal health. You can't talk about animal health without talking about human health. I mean, all of these things kind of get wrapped in together. The conversations are never simple. We recognize, and I think the industry knows this more broadly, is we have to kind of come at this from a very broad perspective. Because that's the way our critics are coming at it. And that's how the dialogues are growing around these things. Gotcha. And that's, I know, that's an unfair question, but I don't care. Um, Maybe if you guys sponsored me, I'd ask you a fair question. Just saying. (laughs) Do you want to know what I think? Mm. Have you ever heard of a lady called Donnery Hales? I have. She's funny. I like her. I follow her on Twitter. No. Okay. (laughs) Here's the thing. I interviewed her and I hit her with these exact questions about BASF. And she did the same thing that you did and, until the interview was over. I said, OK, great podcast. What in the hell are you doing asking me those questions? You know, I can't answer them. Is that what's going to happen here? Possibly. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It, it makes Robbie, me, makes you're naughty. Me, <laughs> 
I don't need very it naughty, from you. Very naughty, very <laughs> naughty. No, but, but I will tell you, this isn't my space. So I, as a company employee, I can't really speak to this. Now, someday when I retire, yeah, let's chat. You going to write a book? Oh, I'd love to. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of interesting stories here that are yet to be told. I think that, you know, moving forward when, you know, maybe the next generation's around and they start talking about what happened back when, I think that people will be surprised at, at the stories that come out. So. so when you write your book and you know how like in the back of the paperback, they've got like all the little quotes, you know, this book was whatever. And then they'll say the person's name. Can I be one of those people? Absolutely. I would love Sweet. that. You have to be complimentary. You already Rob. agreed. It's on and, a podcast, and, so it's it's legally no, binding. <laughs> no, it's not legally binding. And you actually have to read the book. Uh, see, again, here with the details. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Cammie, Ryan, you've lived an interesting life, and I really appreciate you sharing it with us. But my question to you, what's the lesson that you have learned in your life? Hmm philosophical one. It's better than the bear questions, isn't it? (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) Okay. So I guess what I have to say is this. So to me, life is a path. And really, there are only two rules in this path. You have to begin and you have to continue. May not always have a choice how you begin, but I've learned that you've always got the choice of how you can continue and which paths you can take. So my advice is pick your paths wisely, but then own the hell out of your life. Like just no apologies, own it. Doesn't matter if you're talking about job, your identity, your family, everything. Be authentic, be you. And if someone out there who's, uh, you know, got a young family and, you know, the marriage isn't going to work out and now they find themselves as a single parent, uh, what advice would you have to them? Don't let the disappointments suck you in. Let it drive you. Because I think that there was a while where I was shaking in my boots and trying to figure out how I was going to get through the day or days. And there is something about just getting up in the morning and going, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do this for my kid or my kids. And I'm just going to make the best life I can for my kids. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you just carry on. And, and things will fall into place. They, they just will. Mm-hmm. You have to have a willingness to commit to that, to decide. You know, you were talking about, again, it was something that you guys just couldn't get over at that time, but yet you always work together for the benefit of your daughter at the time. I like that because, unfortunately, you do see that a lot of times where the ex is like bad mouth and then the other ex in front of the kids or to the kids or whatever. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. It's, it's hard on children because children, young children, especially see themselves as the extension of their parents or their parents as extensions of themselves. So when the parents are fighting amongst each other, it probably creates a bit of divisiveness in the kid. I mean, the kid just doesn't know how to view the parents. doesn't even know how to see him or herself. It can be really damaging. I think that that was my legacy from when I was a kid, and I just didn't want to see my kids go through it. And it's tough to watch families break apart. There's also another part of this, too. 
is that sometimes that's the best thing for your family and for your children. If you cannot live together in harmony, then maybe sometimes living apart and being happy as individuals and sharing the raising of your children, that's sometimes not a bad option. And we shouldn't necessarily criticize people who make that choice because we don't always have the whole story either. Last question. You ready for it? Yes. The cowboy. Mm -hmm. George W. Bush or Harrison Ford? (laughs) He always says, why don't they say I look like Hugh Jackman or Brad Pitt? I mean, is that rhetorical? Well, it kind of is, you know, and I say, well, actually, I guess you kind of do look like George Bush. I don't see Harrison Ford, but he was down in Dallas about 12 years ago at a Dallas North Stars game, and a whole family came up to him and wanted to have a picture taken with him (laughs) because they thought he was George Bush. And he happily obliged, because that's kind of how he rolls. There was one picture you had with him, and I'm like, oh my gosh, he's married to George Bush. And then other pictures you've had, not so much. But one picture you had, I wish I could have it. I mean, he looks exactly like George Bush. Junior, W. Bush. Yeah, W. Bush. And, And actually, when you meet him, apparently some of his mannerisms, like if you see him in real life, I think that that sticks a little bit more with people, too. So I don't know. Who knows? Whatever. He looks like the cowboy to me. (laughs) Well, hopefully sometime when we get down there, we can uh, hang out with you guys. We'd really love that. Okay. Cammie Ryan, PhD. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to do this podcast and everybody else. We hope you catch us next week. And thank you for listening to the Shark Farmer Podcast. I am your host, Rob Sharkey. Please visit us at www.sharkeyfarms.com and just search for Shark Farmer to follow me on Twitter. Later. What? Uh, I'm what getting a, a little. Have you adjusted anything different today? No, Every I can. I can hear, hear myself. Uh huh. Yeah, it's an echo. I think it is what it is. Okay. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Are, if you're going back into the house, I really need a phone charger. I'm just saying. I will get it. For I'm you. not kicking you out. Oh, I'm not leaving, but I'll run in for your charger. Would you really? I Just would. for me? I oh, would. that's so nice because I'm whole. Oh. Do you want a cup of coffee too? Yeah. <laughs> okay. You can tell my voice is about shot. Are, yes. <laughs> yeah. It's harvest and I might have smoked maybe one too many cigars. I, I Like one a week is all I do, Cammy. but the harvest, sometimes I cheat. You know what I'm saying? Well, we all have to have our vices. <laughs>